This is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It is Thursday, the 8th day of February, 2024. Hope you're having a great day. Um, Got to start the program with a little bit of sad news. Fiona the mouse passed away yesterday, so the cage is covered, and currently the ARN studios are rodentless. There is no hamster, there is no mouse. Um, Mrs. Squirrel and I have been talking, and when I return from California from the Shepherds Conference in March, we will begin hunting for the next Darby the Hamster. So we will not be rodentless for long, but yes, poor, poor Fiona passed away yesterday. Um, she was a rescue. Uh, she was over six months old when we got her and she's been with us for over a year. So she was somewhere close to two years old, which is a pretty good run for a mouse. (laughs) Um, she was happy and healthy the whole time she was here. But uh, in the last couple of days, she had been exhibiting signs of age. Um, they age very rapidly. Uh, it's it's uh, their lives are so short that they're, you know, they're they're babies, then they're adults, and they're adults, healthy, happy, active, right up until usually the last few days or weeks, when all of a sudden they exhibit signs of aging. And she had begun exhibiting those signs over the last few days and then yesterday yesterday she uh she ended her run so we will we will miss little fiona it's uh been feeling kind of empty here in the studio uh which is of course my office is where i sit and work and and uh yesterday doing some work with the empty cage was uh it's it's a sad moment. Um, I, I get very attached to my little rodents, and so we will be, as I said, we will begin looking for the next Darby the hamster when I return from the Shepherds Conference. Um, until then, the cages the cage will be cleaned, and it will be ready for a new resident in the near future. So just wanted to throw that out. Um, the other thing I'm, I'm very thankful because we were, we were talking last night at uh youth group, which is mostly junior high girls. Um, we were talking last night, uh, in Acts chapter eight about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And I am very, very happy that none of them actually asked what a eunuch was. So we didn't really, we just kind of kind of skipped over that <laughs> so there are things there are things they need to know at this age there are things they really don't need to know at this age um, and if they didn't know I wasn't going to tell them so <laughs> there's that nobody asked if, if anybody had asked we would have dealt with it um, in a, a as mature and uh, matter of fact manner as possible but it did not come up for which I am thankful. This is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. We webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the audio podcast is available for download wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are certain to find something worth listening to. I guarantee it. What do we got coming up today? We have scripture readings from the Book of Common Prayer. We have have scripture readings from the Legacy Standard Bible. We have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, I just kind of read two lines together there. You think I would know this after 
three years of doing this on a daily basis. Um, <laughs> but I just, I just messed it up. Let's start over. We've got scripture readings from the Legacy Standard Bible. We have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. And it's Thursday, so it's Theology Thursday. We are in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 19 of the Law of God. And today we're going to be looking at paragraph 6. So that's all ahead of us. Now let us begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, our, excuse me. Our scripture reading today are Genesis 41 and Psalm 41. Genesis 41. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And behold, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the reeds. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and thin, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and thin cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He again fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. And behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now it happened that in the morning his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh recounted to them his dream. But there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would bring to remembrance today my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. And we had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was with us a Hebrew youth, a slave of the captain of the bodyguard, and we recounted them to him. And he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. And they rushed him out of the pit, and he shaved himself and changed his clothes, and he came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. Yet I have heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and that you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. Excuse me. Then Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will answer concerning the welfare of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile. 
and they grazed in the reeds. And behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and lean, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt in regard to ugliness. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows, but they devoured them, and yet I could not Yet it could not be known that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. Then I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk. And behold, seven ears, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. So I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could declare it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has declared to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. And the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven lean ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will arise, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land, so that the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine for it will be very heavy. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is confirmed by God, and God will quickly bring it about. So now let Pharaoh look for a man understanding and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action and appoint overseers over the land, and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food, of these good years that are coming, and let them store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority, and let them keep watch over it, and let the food be appointed for the land for the seven years of famine, which will happen in the land, so that the land will not be cut off during the famine. And the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, "Since God has made no made you know, excuse me, since God has made you know all of this, there is no one so understanding and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and according to your command all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you." And Pharaoh said to Joseph, "See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt." Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph zephanath Paneah, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, as a wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and passed through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the lamb brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of those seven years, which happened in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. And he named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
Then the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to came, began to come, just as Joseph had said. So there was famine in all the land, in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. Then all the land of Egypt was famished, and the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. Now the famine was over all the face of the land, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Now all the earth also came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. And now... Psalm 41. Psalm 41 for the choir director, a psalm of David. How blessed is he who considers the poor. Yahweh will provide him escape in the day of calamity. Yahweh will keep him alive, will keep him and keep him alive, and he shall be blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. Yahweh will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness you restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Yahweh, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks worthlessness. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he speaks it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise for me calamities, saying, A vile thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down he will not rise up again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Yahweh, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me, because my enemy makes no shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity, and you make me stand firm in your presence forever. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. And now our reading today from Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. Today's devotional is entitled, Two Groups. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Many and few describe two groups of people. Those who enter through the wide gate and travel the broad way toward, toward a destination of destruction are many. They include pagans and nominal Christians, atheists and religionists, theists and humanists, Jews and Gentiles, every person from every age, background, persuasion, and circumstance who has not come to saving obedience in Jesus Christ. In the day of judgment, many will claim to be followers of Christ. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew seven twenty two and 23. Those who are excluded will not be just atheists or rank pagans, but nominal Christians who profess to know and trust Christ, but, but who refuse to come to him on his own terms. The group that goes through the narrow gate and travels the narrow way and is destined for life are few in number. Jesus said to them, many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Make sure you are numbered with the few, and not with those who will not who will excuse me, and not with those who will receive Jesus's shocking declaration at the day of judgment. Ask yourself. What are some of the greatest lies that lead the mildly religious into believing they have accepted Christ into their hearts? In what ways do our churches today accommodate these? How can we work against this devious scheme of the enemy? Important words this morning from Dr. MacArthur. 
speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, which we are looking at in these devotions, um, Dr. Steve Lawson, in his uh, Thursday morning Bible study from Herb's House Coffee in Dallas, is doing um, a study now of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and and it's excellent, as is everything Dr. MacArthur, or Dr. Lawson does. Um, so I'm, I'm, I've been enjoying that. And so I would commend that to you. Um, that is the Bible study. You can go to onepassionministry.org and you'll find a link to the Bible study. They stream it on, uh, live on Thursday mornings at, uh, I believe seven o'clock, uh, central seven o'clock Dallas time that they stream it at six o'clock here. Um, and they stream that every Thursday, except when Dr. Lawson is traveling. Um, and then they will they will stream a repeat of a previous Bible study. But so far, he has gone through all of Romans, which was fabulous. He has gone through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and now he's doing the Sermon on the Mount. It is just a good Bible study um, for good, solid solid Bible teaching. Um, he needs to be nicer to Kent, but you know, that's, if you know, you know, <laughs> if you know, you know, be nicer to Kent, point that out to you. I have a bag of Herb's house, uh, house blend, which will be my next coffee. When I finish this five pound bag of trailblazer blend from Montana coffee traders, I have a waiting on my shelf, a pound, well, 12 ounces. When did a pound of coffee quit being a pound? That is a huge, I bought a five pound bag, it's five pounds. I buy a little bag that's supposed to be a pound of coffee, it's 12 ounces. When did it quit being 16 ounces of coffee? I know they made the bag smaller rather than raise the price, but when I buy a pound of coffee, I want a pound of coffee. I want to be the guy in the old general store in the cowboy movie ordering his pound of bacon and his pound of coffee before he goes back out into the field. <laughs> it just, nope, you get 12 ounces. That's all you get, buddy. You want a pound, you have to buy two and then you're over. Uh, I, it just, a pound of coffee should be a pound of coffee. That is my commentary on that. Um, Bible says don't use... Different weights and measures. <laughs> a pound of coffee should be a pound of coffee. Um, if you if you agree with me, write to pound of coffee at. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll start a we'll start a petition that a pound of coffee should be a pound of coffee, and we'll just leave it at that. All right, it is Thursday, so we are looking at uh, it's theology Thursday. We are in chapter 19 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. We are looking at of the law of God. Today we're looking at paragraph 6. There are seven paragraphs in the chapter. Six is a long one, so we're not going to get to seven today. So, so uh, the plan is to complete chapter 7 next week. Um, and just a reminder... Um, as March is rapidly approaching, as we are on the eighth day of February now, March is rapidly approaching. And I want to remind you that I'm going to be in California for Shepherds Conference. I will not be doing squirrel chatter while I'm down there. Now, I do have some stuff that I'll be recording while I'm down there. I've got plans to do a couple of interviews so I will have equipment with me, and I will be doing a couple of interviews while I'm down there at Shepherd's Conference, um, and I'm looking forward to that. But uh, in, in the meanwhile, um, we will continue with, uh, there will be a gap in squirrel chatter while I am not, not here, but knowing that I will return. And I will be gone from squirrel chatter a week and a half. Because when I go to Shepherd's Conference, I leave after church on Sunday, which means I arrive about lunchtime on Monday. 
because I drive late on Sunday. I usually get there, you know, early afternoon on Monday. Tuesday, I volunteer at Grace to You. Um, stuffing envelopes, just like any other volunteer. Um, that's on Tuesdays. Then Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday is Shepherd's Conference. I will be at the conference. I always arrive early and stay late. <laughs> I, I, have, I, go to, I go to the conference to be at the conference. I, I don't, uh, don't typically go anywhere else. Um, Saturday, I will do some sort of socializing with friends. And then Sunday, I will go to church at Santa Clarita Baptist Church um, in Santa Clarita because I will be staying with my friend Dave Caldwell, who is the pastor there. Um, and uh, I always think it'd be a tad rude to go to somebody else's church when you're staying with the pastor of another church. No, I, I, I appreciate my time with Dave and I appreciate his ministry at Santa Clarita Baptist Church. So I will be attending there on Sunday. Um, you know, I will have been at Grace Community Church Monday, Tuesday, or Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Um, and I will not be going to church at Grace Church on Sunday. Um, it also saves me about half an hour <laughs> getting out of town because Sunday after church, I will be headed north out of Santa Clarita and heading up to Palmdale and then cut across the Palmdale Highway to I-15 about Victorville, turn north and head home. Um, and I will be home late Monday night, which means I'm not going to be doing a podcast on Tuesday. So the plan is to be back here doing the podcast on Wednesday. Uh, I don't have a calendar in front of me, but the Wednesday after Shepherd's Conference, the podcast should resume. So that's coming up in about a month's time. And I just want to start putting that out there so that you, because I know there are so many of you who plan your schedules around squirrel chatter. <laughs> oh, no, you don't. And, and you shouldn't. All right, we are looking at chapter 19 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. This is the chapter of the law of God. I will read the first five paragraphs, and then we will break down paragraph six. Paragraph one. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written on his heart, and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep him. Paragraph 2. The same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall, and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, and written in two tables, the, first, the four first containing our duty towards God, and the other six our duty to man. Paragraph 3. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws, containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, preconfiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation are, by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father for that end abrogated and taken away. Paragraph 4. To them also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that instruction, their general equity only being of moral use. Paragraph 5. The moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve 
but much strengthen this observation. And now paragraph 6. Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to fuller conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin. Together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience, it is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show that even their sins deserve what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them although freed from the curse and unallayed rigor thereof the promises of it likewise show them god's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works so as man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. So this is a long paragraph dealing with the place the law of God has in the life of the believer. And clearly, we are not saved by keeping the law. But the law provides the standard of life so that we should strive to obey it. And so we look to the law for guidance, for understanding how we should live, for understanding of the sinfulness of sin, for understanding our own sinfulness so that we can confess to God and repent and 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 because the the life of the believer is a life of constant repentance because we are sinful and we continue to sin long after we come to Christ hopefully we sin less <laughs> hopefully the sins we commit are less severe yet we continue to sin as we after we have come to Christ so we the, the law is a sanctifying force in the life of the believer by, you know, blessed is the man who, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Not as a way of salvation, but as a way of knowing God and his standards and as a way of cleaning up his own life. The, the, the law, as it were, is a, you know, as, as it is said in the scriptures, the law is a mirror that shows us ourselves. And nobody looks at a mirror and then does nothing. And you look at the mirror and you see your, your hair's messed up, you pull out your comb and comb your hair. When you look at the mirror and you see you have dirt on your eyes or dirt on your face somewhere, you clean it. You know, this is, you know, we look in a mirror because we want to improve ourselves. You don't care what you look like. You don't ever look in a mirror. You know, the mirror is there for you to fix your face, fix your hair, and go about your life. And the law is a mirror that we look at, and then we clean ourselves up. It's like, oh, there's an area where I need to do a little bit of washing. And so you wash that area. And then the next time you look at the law, oh, there's another area. You know, there, there's a, my beard needs trimming. My hair needs combing. There's something I need to do to improve my appearance. And so the law acts in that way. And it shows us where there is sin in our lives and where we need to improve. Not in order to be saved but in order to 
be pleasing to God. To, to, we want to please our master. We want to be good and faithful servants. We want to live holy lives. If you don't desire those things, you need to check yourself if you are really in Christ. Because if you are in Christ, you will desire to walk in his ways. And so the law shows us what his ways are, shows us how we ought to walk, and shows us where we're not walking as we ought. So let's break this down. The first passage, uh, or first segment of this paragraph says, Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned. This is again saying that we are not, the law is not a way of salvation. We could quibble over the covenant of works language. Um, you know where I stand on that. It's not necessary, but, um, and I don't think it's accurate. Um, we know that uh, Ulrich Zwingli developed covenant theology as a defense against infant baptism. That is a historical fact. It is well known. Why Baptists would hold to it, I don't know. I have a lot of Baptist friends who are covenant theologians, and it is a gross inconsistency. I don't know why they would hold to it. Of course, they think I'm silly for being a dispensationalist, <laughs> so we'll just leave that there. Um, doesn't mean they're not saved. Doesn't mean I'm not saved. None of us are condemning the other, but we, we do kind of look at each other and scratch our heads. Um, so I don't think the covenant of works language is there, but we understand what he's saying, that although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned, the law is not a way of salvation. You can't keep the law perfectly in order to be saved. Um, it was never a way of salvation. The, the law's purpose was twofold. Remember, we've, we've, we've been going through Deuteronomy. The law is temporal and conditional. The covenant made at Mount Sinai is temporal and conditional. The, the, it is temporal in that it, it, its actions, you know, it, its blessings are here and now. You'll be long in the land and you'll prosper. I mean, we've been looking at the blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy 28 on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So we understand that the blessings and the curses take place on earth. You know, if you obey God, if Israel obeyed God, because it is specifically Israel in that law, if Israel obeyed God, they would live long in the land and be prosperous. If Israel disobeyed God, they would be um, cursed and driven from the land. We've been looking at that. So it's conditional and temporal. It's conditional upon obeying or disobeying. It's temporal in that the blessings and the cursings take place here and now, or there and then, back then. Um, although, like I said, I think I believe Israel is still under the curse and, and will be until they look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn. And that time is coming. So for, for biblical texts here to support this, we have Romans 6.14. For sin shall not be a master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We're, we're not under the law in a, a matter of a way of salvation. Um, Galatians 2.16 Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we having have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. And the reason no flesh will be justified by works of the law is you and I can't keep the law. Not perfectly. And that is the standard. You have to keep the law perfectly from conception to natural death in order to qualify. 
if you could keep the law perfectly from the moment you were conceived until the moment you die, you would be saved by your own works. But you can't, so don't even go there. By works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is one of the most important passages in Scripture. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul in Romans, up until chapter 8, lays out that there are two groups of people, those who are in Adam who are condemned and those who are in Christ who are not condemned. And it's not based upon works of the law by the individual. It is based upon with which the first Adam or the second Adam that you identify by faith. So you're either under Adam, which is all of us when we're born, or you're under Christ. If you are under Adam, you are condemned. You have the sin nature. You have the inherited guilt. You have all of that. But if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think about uh, um, the, the Getty song, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. That's key. You know, the Christian has no guilt in this world. Our sins have been paid for. Do we regret things we've done? Certainly. Do we look upon these things as things that we need to learn from? Absolutely. Are we guilty for them? Guilt's been paid. There's no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. That is the only way to have your sins forgiven. So the law is not a way of salvation. And that's what this first clause says. Let me read it again. Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned. The law is not a way of salvation. Next clause. Yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin." So we are looking at the fact that the law, not a way of salvation, but it is useful in directing our lives. It's useful to us that are believers, and it's useful to the non-believer as well. There are principles in the law that ought to be lived by by everybody. Knowing it's not a way of salvation, you can't keep the law and be saved, yet living by it, is a good idea. It's a good rule of life. Um, this is why I don't object to the Ten Commandments being posted in schools and courthouses. You know, the, life has not gotten better in America morally since atheists forced the removal of the Ten Commandments from the walls of school buildings. Life has not gotten better. Um, I was watching a video yesterday on Twitter of, I think it was Oakland, California, guy goes into an Apple store and just starts ripping out display phones, stuffing them in his pocket, walked out, nobody did anything to him. You know, maybe if he'd have gone to school at a school, the house that had thou shalt not steal on the wall, and his parents had supported that, and his school teachers had supported that, and that idea of stealing being wrong 
had been reinforced as he grew up. Whether he was a believer or an unbeliever, he might have thought different about stealing all those iPhones. And then, of course, had law enforcement done something about it, now it might be a good idea, too. Um, as fear of fear of arrest and punishment would stop a lot of this, but that's a different different time. But, you know, having the rule of life that is the law of God taught to everybody is a good thing, you know. Um, the same morality that is displayed in God's law ought to be the same morality that is enshrined in our own laws. You know, we have laws against murder because murder is wrong. Why is murder wrong? Because God is life, and he has said, thou shalt not murder. We have laws against theft because thievery is wrong. Why does, you know, why is thievery wrong? Because God is just, and he said, thou shalt not steal, uh, which implies private property rights. Take that to the bank, you uh, communists. You know, the Bible enshrines private property rights. You have a right to your stuff. Nobody else has a right to your stuff. If somebody else takes your stuff, that's theft. And that is a sin that's punishable by God. It's a rule of life. And it's a good rule of life for everybody, believer and non-believer. It says, the, the law informs them of the will of God and their duty. You know, it, we learn about God by learning what he has enshrined in his law. We know that God is loving because God tells us to love. We know that God is holy because God tells us to be holy. And then the law shows us how to be loving and how to be holy. So it is informing us of the will of God and it informs us of our duty to God and to our neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is your duty that is your duty as a created being, your duty to your creator, your duty to your fellow creature. And that comes straight from God. So this is God's will and this is God's duty. And therefore the law directs us and binds us. We are bound to, you know, bound to mean we're held accountable to walking in the way God has revealed we are to walk. And that applies to the believer as well as the non-believer. The believer, again, is not saved by works of the law, but it is our guide of how to live. And we will give an answer to our master for how well we strove to obey him in this life, even though after he has saved us. There's still an accountability. It's not the judgment of damnation. It's not the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. But it is that Bema seat of Christ, that, that judgment seat of Christ, where we will stand before him and give an answer to how well we did with the life he has given us, the life that he redeemed. And, and that should be a sobering thought. And the law of God is what directs us and binds us in that life. It also shows us the sinful pollution of our natures, hearts, and lives so that we can see how sinful we are. A, this is for the glory of God because we can shout from the rooftops, look at what he saved me from. You know, Look at this wicked person. You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, I wasn't almost there. <laughs> he, he just had to nudge me over the finish line. I wasn't anywhere close, and neither were you. 
If you have been saved by Jesus Christ, he didn't just nudge you the last few inches because you almost made it. No, he pulled you up from the depths in the mire. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because he loved us with such a great love, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. So this is important. So we can examine ourselves in light of the law and come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin. This is again that mirror. We can look at our lives. We can see where we are sinful. We can mortify that sin. Put it to death. Don't live with it. Don't coddle it. Don't feed it. Put it to death. And clean up our lives because we we come to, you know, confront our own sinfulness. And the way we do that is because the law of God shines a light into our dark hearts so that we can see the sin that still lurks within it. And there's a lot of it, folks. Nobody even comes close to being perfect in this life. Sinless perfection in this life is a pipe dream. That's what we look forward to when we are in the presence of Christ after we have left this earth and put this sinful body behind, whether, you know, whether he calls us home or he comes again. When that happens, we will be like him because we will see him like he is. We will be changed. We will finally be cleansed. The very presence of sin in our flesh will be gone because we will have new redeemed bodies, glorified bodies that are not subject to the corruption of sin. Um, and, and as I've said before, we cannot comprehend a world without sin. We cannot comprehend ourselves without sin. But, oh, we long for it. Um, watching an interview with John MacArthur, um, of course, he just celebrated 55 years as pastor-teacher at Grace Community Church. And I watched an interview. It wasn't, it was recent in that it was in the last few years, but it wasn't, you know, this week in relation to the 55th anniversary. But in this interview, he said, you know, somebody asked him, what is he looking forward to about heaven? And he said, you know, it's because he's tired of the war with the flesh. He's tired of the struggle of sin, struggling with sin. He looks forward to not having to deal with that anymore. And he says, as the older he gets, the more tired of that he gets. And I understand that. I really do. You know, there are things I still long to have victory over that I haven't yet. Um, and, and you're that way too, if you're honest. So there, we're, we're far from sinless perfection here on this earth. But the law of the Lord is a tool for our sanctification because it shows us our sin and it shows us the way out of our sin. And it, you know, once you're aware of a sin, then you can fall on your knees and pray. And then you can take all the steps you need to step to mortify that sin in your life. You know, and, and so that's, that's one of the uses of the law. Um, the texts were given here, Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what I'm saying. When you look at the sin, you look at the law, you see your sin so that you cannot deny, you know, the Bible says thou shalt not steal. The Bible says don't bear false witness. The Bible says, you know, have no other gods before God. You know, you can look at that and you can see, oh, there's my sin. Because the Bible just said I shouldn't do what I'm doing. And, and you know, in thought, word, and deed. 
You know, it's not just what you do, <laughs> it's what you think about doing. So, you know, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her here, even though he never did any kind of physical act. He thought about it. And folks, there's none of us who aren't guilty of that. Not a one. So, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Rather, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Yeah. The law reveals our sin. All right, and this last clause is very long. I'm looking at the clock, and I know we're, we're running late. So the, the law um, brings us to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show that even their sins deserve what even their sins deserve, and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them. Although freed from the curse and unallayed rigor thereof, the promises of it likewise show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works, so as man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other is no evidence of him being under the law and not under grace. Long paragraph or long part of the paragraph, what is it saying here? What it's saying is, and, and we've been looking at this in the law of Moses, there are blessings here and now for keeping the law. And there are curses here and now for disobeying the law. In other words, actions have consequences. You may be a Christian believer, but if you engage in theft, you may end up in jail. There are consequences to your actions. You may have eternal forgiveness, but you might still be liable to the court for things that you have done. And likewise, if you are doing good and striving to be obedient to the law, there are blessings associated with that. Um, we were reading the story of Joseph this morning, and you know, look at how God made everything in that Joseph put his hand to prosper. God can make you prosperous. And if you are striving to obey him, he is going to bless that. Just as if you are disobeying him. You know, this is one of the reasons why it's, it's, it's clear that moral people, even though they are not, of course, they're, they're not perfect in their morality because by, by uh, works of the law, no man will be justified. But people who generally strive to live moral, upright law, lives, even apart from Christ, tend to have good lives on this earth. <coughs> They're respected. You know, a good employee gets promoted. It doesn't matter if he's a Christian or a Buddhist. You know, a, a good person, a good neighbor gets the respect of his neighbors. You know, he might be elected to office. He might, you know, if, if somebody, you know, if the, the local Hindu has a fabulous business and he takes care of his customers, his business is going to prosper because he has good morals, even though he doesn't have Christ. So there is a blessing to being moral. But going back to the very beginning of this clause, 
says that the law gives us a clearer sight of the need we have for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. When we really see how hard it is for us to keep the law, that really should amaze us at the perfection of Christ's obedience to the law because he kept it perfectly. In the, we can't even imagine keeping it perfectly. I, I, I honestly believe that most of us, there are transgressions of the law that we are totally oblivious to, that we are transgressing the law in ways that we're not even aware of because God in his grace doesn't show us the full extent of our sinfulness. But the more we see of the law, the closer we come to the light of Christ, the more of our sin is revealed. And that gives us a clearer sight of our need for Christ and a better understanding of just how amazing this grace is that we have received. So the law restrains our corruptions because it forbids sin. It, it shows us that we, there are blessings that we can expect for keeping the law as well as um, things that we might expect for not keeping the law. So this is, this is a, a good thing to, to do, is to keep the law. Romans 6, 12-14, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So the fact that you have been redeemed from sin means that sin is no longer your master. You're not under the law. You're under grace. What a great thing. But the, you know, so the Bible says don't sin. How do you know what sin is? The law tells us. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 13. Now to sum up, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit. This is our attitude that we should have for each other. We should be sympathetic not judgmental. We should be brotherly, you know, caring, tenderhearted, not, not hard-hearted with our fellow believers, humble in spirit. Don't think you're better than he is just because you haven't fallen into that particular sin. Um, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the law, eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So if you are going to be zealous for what is good, excuse me, you need to know what is good. And what is good is shown to us in the law. And, and so we are not to do evil. We are to do good. And we are to strive to do good. And how to do good is revealed to us in the law. So it's still a very useful tool. It was never a way of salvation. But it's a very useful tool in how we ought to live our lives. So don't ever think that the law of God has no place in the life of the believer. It's important to, you know, Meditate on the law of the Lord day and night because in it you will find guidance for how to live. All right, now the Apostles' Creed. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now the colic for the fifth Sunday after Epiphany. Almighty God, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you revealed the way of eternal life to every race and nation. Pour out this gift anew that, by the preaching of the gospel, your salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And now the colic for guidance. Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit, that in all the cares and occupations of our life we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And for the unrepentant we pray. Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son, you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, folks, that is Squirrel Chatter for this Thursday morning. Hope you have a great day. Remember, as you go around your day, do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.